Well, I am a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, it is true that I lost my way for a while after we first moved here, and I tried to be a fan of the Seahawks, but I have returned to my first love, <laughs> and not just because the Chiefs are headed to the Super Bowl this year. Okay, maybe their recent success was a small factor. All right, I'm a pastor. I should probably be honest. I used to be a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs, and then I wasn't anymore, and now I am again because they're really good. Every sports fan has heard the phrase, we believe, or just believe, or only believe, used in conjunction with his or her team. Look around in the stands at the Super Bowl, and I'll just bet you you'll see a sign or two that says something about believing. In 2009, a movie called We Believe came out about the fans of the Chicago Cubs. As a deeply committed St. Louis Cardinals fan, I found that quite amusing since there is absolutely no logical reason whatsoever to believe in the Chicago Cubs, ever. Do I believe the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl next Sunday? Do I think my belief in them will help them win or that they, they might lose if enough of us don't believe? No. I don't think it makes one iota of difference, <clears throat> whether we believe or not. But some people are just about that silly when it comes to believing in their team. The fact is that the fundamental concept of belief and believing has been watered down in our culture until most people don't really have an understanding of belief at all. We're just coming out of the Christmas season. And with that, I'll go back to sports because it's less offensive than what I would say about this aspect of our American Christmas. When it comes to believing your team will win, for instance, belief is actually no more than wishful thinking. And to say we believe even about a great team like the Chiefs actually makes no difference in terms of the outcome of the game. That being said, go Chiefs. Belief and believing are misunderstood in other contexts as well. How many fairy tales have as a moral the need to believe? Movies like The Neverending Story. Anybody remember that one? That goes back a ways. Uh, Hook, uh, Legend, and Polar Express. Good movies, I suppose, but check it out. If you know those movies, you know their storylines make the case that the existence of certain characters or even worlds depend on those characters. They will vanish from them. And that if we doubt or forget about those characters, they will vanish from existence. This, of course, is backwards. The existence of an entity is not dependent upon our belief in that entity at all. Something either exists or does not exist regardless of belief or unbelief. Conversely, true belief may indeed depend upon an actual entity's existence. On the existence of a thing, true belief might depend on that. Think about that for a minute. One could make the case that it is impossible to truly believe 
You could say you did. But to truly believe in something that does not exist for very long would be very difficult. Hang with me. Look at, look at the way uh, we, we have progressed as, from children. Think, think about what we believed as children versus what we believe as adults. I would contend that if something does not actually exist, most people eventually stop believing in it. Orthodox Jews believe in the God of the Bible with firm conviction, and, and they have done so for millennia. Judaism is the oldest religion on earth. How did they hang on to this belief? Throughout their lives and throughout the generations, thousands of years, perhaps it's because their God actually exists. Muslims believe in one God as well, and while the God of Muhammad was not the God of the Bible, a billion Muslims do prove that it's not difficult to believe in one all-powerful God, because again, such a God actually exists. Meanwhile, Hindus believe in so many different gods, hundreds of them, that one must question whether they really believe in any of them for long. Just kind of move from one to the next. That might be why Hindus are prone to digress into Buddhism, which is actually a form of atheism. But the point is that people find it hard to continue believing in things that do not actually exist. This is why polytheism is basically dying off. Regardless of that more debatable point, this much is self-evident. The existence of something does not depend upon anyone's belief or how many people believe. Another way that belief and believing are mischaracterized in our culture is the language of positive thinking. Not that all positive thinking is bad, of course. It's good. I mean, we should try to think positively. But certain authors, talk show hosts, and expert guests, sadly some preachers, tell us we've got to believe in our ability to achieve everything from weight loss to wealth gain. And ultimately we're told belief is a, is a means to getting what we want. It's going to be predicated on our belief. You just got to believe. Believe in yourself. Believe your goal will happen as if it's already true. Only believe and it can be yours. If you've heard of something called the secret, A, run away from it false teaching. And B, I'll go ahead and tell you that the big secret is actually something called the law of attraction. This idea is also what's behind the word faith movement, or what you might know as name it and claim it theology, which basically says as long as you believe enough, you can have whatever you want. You will attract what you believe. So goes the so-called secret. Some are known to defend this point of view, with Scripture taken out of context. I doubt any of you believe this stuff, but right now I'm asking in a general way, is this kind of thinking actually true? And the answer, I'm here to tell you, is no. It's not actually true. This kind of thinking is not true. I'm trying to save you from disappointment or worse. Just believing in something will not make it happen. If you really believe you can fly, I sincerely hope you will test that belief from no more than 5 to 10 feet off the ground. Or maybe 15 feet so you can learn a lesson. <laughs> My belief in gravity does not make gravity real. Any more than not believing in gravity will make it not real. Believing gravity does not exist will change absolutely nothing. However, believing that gravity does exist will change your life and perhaps save it. What's my point in all of this? Philosophizing 
Well, most of our text today hinges on the concept of belief. However, I'm concerned that many of us no longer understand belief as a concrete idea. Many modern concepts of belief are really more like make-believe than true belief. If you say you believe in unicorns or Sasquatch or Jake the Alligator Man, the latest miracle product, whatever, and you don't mean something different than, than what you mean when you say you believe in Jesus, we have a problem. So let's get into our text for today, and I decided we could just go ahead and move right on from <clears throat> where we left off last week. <clears throat> Does anybody have a cough drop? You get the prize today. Yeah, preferably an unused one. Thank you. <clears throat> here we go. It's James 1, 5 through 8 here. If any of you lacks wisdom, <clears throat> he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, for just a moment, let's take a look at verse 5. If any of you like, lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. I intended to talk about verse 5 last week, but as mentioned, I cut the message short to have some time for something else. But please know that I believe verse 5 is a pivotal verse in this passage, pointing both backward and forward. The verses before and the verses after are not really about wisdom but rather they're about the larger subject of first, perseverance through suffering, and second, effective faith, or believing. Verse 5 about wisdom points back to our understanding of the trials of life. We talked about last week our, 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 our ability to have joy through suffering. And it points forward to uh, our understanding of faith or belief. But mostly I just wanted to explain that last week um, as we talked about suffering, he closed us that out with, with wisdom because he understands that to have an understanding like we talked about last week, that challenging, challenging understanding, we were going to need to ask God for wisdom to be able to live our life that way. But as I think uh, about verse 5, I also want to tell you that I could have done a whole message on verse 5. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I just know that I'll be using it other times. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on verse 5 today. Uh, but just think for a moment about it. It really, it really speaks for itself anyway. It's not a whole lot to, to say other than just what it says. If we will ask, we will receive wisdom from God. And we'll receive the special kind of wisdom that only comes from God. It's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. So write that down. Memorize that. James 1.5. Remember it. Put it into practice. On a personal note, James 1.5 was one of the first verses I remember memorizing as a child. And it stuck with me for all these years because my mother gave it to me. Printed on a small plaque. And it would sit, I'd sit on my desk all through high school at least. I don't know, remember how far back, but maybe junior high, high school, even into college, would sit on my desk. 
James 1, 5. And so to this day, I pray for wisdom. It's on my regular list. I pray for wisdom regularly because of the promise of this verse. My hope is that a lifetime of praying for wisdom will result in the kind of wisdom gained through a lifetime of praying for wisdom. But again, even though verse 5 could stand alone, the context shows that James is not mostly talking about wisdom. He briefly throws out the promise about wisdom because he knows God's wisdom will be needed to understand the primary truths he's trying to get across. So now we're going to focus on verses 6 through 8, which are all about belief. I see at least three principles regarding belief in this passage, and after we've covered those, we'll talk about three applications. The first principle is the most obvious. Receiving requires believing. It may help you to follow along in your uh, listening guide today, fill in some blanks. It's usually they say that uh, it helps us retain things and things to sink in better if we write them down, but no pressure if you don't want to. That's fine too. Receiving requires believing. In verse 7, James clearly says that we should not expect to receive anything from God, including wisdom, if we don't believe. That man shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord without belief. And so the obvious point is that receiving requires believing. One important question, though, what is it that we must believe in order to receive? Is the object of our belief the thing that we're asking for? Or is the object of our belief the one who is able to give us what we really need? What we really want? Whether we actually know what that is or not. Can I get anything if I want if, if I just believe enough? Thank goodness, no. That would be absolutely terrible. So if it isn't about believing in whatever I want, then what exactly am I supposed to believe in if I am to receive? Let's take a look at an example from Scripture for our answer. Look with me at Romans 4, <clears throat> starting with verse 16. In the context of a discussion about salvation coming through faith, Paul reminds his readers of the father of our faith, Abraham. Romans 4, verse 16. So the promise is received by faith, belief. It's given as a free gift, and we're all certain to receive it whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham's faith didn't weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. Watch this. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. Now look at verse 21 again. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. What did Abraham believe? Just anything? Did he start with his own dreams for life? No, he did not. Did he believe in whatever he was wishing for? No. Abraham believed in two very important things. First, Abraham believed God's promise. Abraham believed God's promise. 
All this about continuing to believe he would be the father of many nations, even though he had no offspring yet, is about believing in God's promise. God had made a promise to Abraham. And even though time passed and began to seem impossible, he never stopped believing that promise would come true. Secondly, Abraham believed in God. Verse 17 says, Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. In other words, Abraham believed in who God is and what God is able to do. He believed in God. When we're talking about biblical belief and when we're talking about what exactly we are to believe in, it really is as simple as those two things. Believe in God's promises and believe in who God is. Listen, Abraham did not believe in things that God had not necessarily promised and then expect to receive them because of his faith. That would have put Abraham in control of God, which is a scary thought. Instead, Abraham believed in the specific things that God had said to him, and he believed those promises would happen because of who God is, his character, his ability. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, all right. So I can't just believe God will do whatever I ask him to do no matter what, or even whatever I think he should do, ought to do, but rather I need to believe in what he has actually promised, and also in his ability to do what he has promised, even during those times when it seems impossible. And I say back to you, boom, you got it. But then others are feeling a little bit discouraged by this truth, aren't you? Because maybe you're thinking, God hasn't talked to me like he talked to Abraham. God didn't make any promises to me, so there's nothing for me to believe. Friend, that's where you're completely mistaken. God has promised you so very much. For example, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then you have become an adopted son or daughter of God, and the very inheritance of Christ, as well as that of Abraham's, is now yours also. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, All praise to God, <clears throat> the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. How many of you know the reach of change and decay is a pretty big reach here on earth? That's a lot of reach. Not what's in heaven. It's beyond the reach of change and decay. That's just one in a million examples of a promise from Scripture from God to you and me if you're born again, if you know Jesus. The Bible is overflowing with promises to the children of God. And someone says, yeah, yeah, the promises of heaven. Would you listen to yourself? Yeah, the promises that last for eternity as if that were not enough. But if you're feeling less mature, I can also tell you that there are plenty of promises for our time on earth as well. I dare say you'd never be able to memorize all of the promises of Scripture if you were to try. I don't think you could do it. One of the best benefits of daily Bible study is staying fresh on all the things that God has promised to His people but here's the catch, folks. The fulfillment of these promises, these many promises, often depends on belief. 
Really? You mean, you mean there might be promises I have not received because I don't believe? That's exactly right. God has hinged much of His will for your life upon your belief. If you didn't see that in today's text, read it again. The promise of wisdom from God is only one example. It's an illustration of something we will only receive if we believe God about it. This famous verse contains one of the great promises of Scripture about wisdom. And for the record, this promise had already been made in the Old Testament. James is always quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from Jesus. James says, believe in what God has promised to those who ask. He'd already promised wisdom to those who ask. He said, believe in that promise and you'll receive it from him. God's will is for you to have wisdom. God's will is for you to have wisdom, but you won't have it to the degree he would prefer unless you believe in the promise. And see, this is only one of God's promises for you. The big question for today is whether or not you believe God's promises and whether or not you truly believe in the God who made those promises. Receiving requires believing. That's the clear principle of these verses. Do a little introspection. What are you missing? What are you missing out on? What promises of Scripture, what promises from God have you not received because you have not believed? Again, not just whatever you want, but what promises have you not believed? And you haven't received them because you didn't believe, really. I'll add that sometimes I think God promises us other things. Even on an individual basis, I believe God made a promise to my wife and me about this church plant. He showed us scripture that wasn't originally about us, but we believe he showed it to us and said, this is what I'm going to do through you. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, if you want to know. And I'm saying that receiving that promise from God may well depend upon us believing that he's going to do it. Now, having said that, I will add that we have to be careful about this kind of thing. We might have, we might have heard wrong. <laughs> if it's a universal promise of, uh, to all God's children, something straight out of the Bible, then we don't have to take it with a grain of salt. But if you think you heard from God on something personal, you'd better leave room for God to define the details. But I'll go ahead, out on a limb... And not all pastors believe this, by the way. They're safer than me. I'll go out on a limb and tell you I do believe God still speaks into our lives personally. He still leads. He still guides. He still makes promises. We need to weigh those things against Scripture. Absolutely. But this pastor does believe that God still makes specific promises to specific people. Just make sure you're not straying into your own desires, your wishful thinking, and you're actually hearing from God. Make sure you don't measure your faith in God by whether or not he comes through on what you thought he said. Like I said, this can be dangerous. But that doesn't mean we pretend God has stopped speaking. I mean, if it's in the Bible, there's no question. But if it's something you felt God said to you in that still small voice, then that's not an absolute. So be careful there. More importantly, I want to ask, I want you to ask yourself, 
especially when it comes to those concrete, absolute promises of Scripture, do I really believe? Or am I what James calls a double-minded person? That brings me to the second principle I see in these verses from James. Number two, there is no halfway belief. I think somebody said that earlier today, and he hadn't seen my sermon yet. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, Holy Spirit. There's no halfway belief. If there's lingering doubt, you simply do not really believe. That's what verse 6 clearly says. I'm not making this up. You can't believe and not believe at the same time. Remember, belief is not wishful thinking. Belief is actually not even hope. While hope is bigger than wishful thinking, belief is bigger than hope and deeper than hope. We're not talking about wishing or hoping something is true. We're talking about believing something is true. Belief is the core of faith. And to have faith requires a wholehearted commitment. This is why when faith is tested, it either perseveres or it was not faith in the first place. This is why I don't think believe is the right word to use when it comes to things like sports teams or aliens or whatever else you just kind of want to believe in. Maybe it's hope, but it's not belief. I can't believe the Chiefs will win next Sunday. I can only hope. Belief is not hope. Belief is being sure. Being sure of what? Go back to point one. Belief is being sure of who God is and knowing in your heart that he will keep his promises. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you won't have moments of doubt or perhaps even short seasons of doubt in your life when it comes to what you believe about God. I certainly have had those dark moments when I wondered about the whole thing. I'm not saying you can't have a moment of doubt. I'm saying that when you are having doubts, don't expect a whole lot from God. That's what I'm saying. James says, let that person not expect that he or she will receive anything from the Lord. So, hey, don't be surprised when doubtful times seem empty of God. Don't be surprised when your half-hearted belief in God or in His promises gains you nothing. You simply either believe or you don't. There's no such thing as halfway belief. Now, the third principle from these verses in James is this. What we believe affects who we are. What we believe affects who we are. Actually, if we look closely at these verses, we can see a story about two different kinds of people. One is described, the other implied. There are those who truly believe and those who don't. According to James, it would seem that every person generally fits into one of these two groups. Let's read it again and see if you can hear the clear contrast between true believers and, frankly, everyone else. Ask yourself, which one am I? But when he asks God, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Do you see the tale of two persons in this passage? There's a person who believes. There's a person who doubts. There's a person who receives what he asks for and a person who does not. There's a grounded person, 
But there is a person who's tossed by the wind like the waves of the sea. There's a single-minded person. There's a double-minded person. There's a stable person. There's an unstable person. Which one are you? Are you stable or unstable, particularly when it comes to the things of God? Are you single-minded or double-minded, tossed around by wind and waves or anchored to a solid foundation? Which is it? The difference in every single case is belief. Some of you did not do a self-inventory just now, did you? You thought it was for someone else. Well, you must be better than your pastor. What am I saying? You think I, I can't ever be double-minded? You think I don't ever get discouraged? That I don't wonder if this thing will ever become what I thought God promised it would be? When people come and go like we have a revolving door? When I see an attitude about church that's like, hey, let's go listen to some sermons. And that's church. We'll go somewhere else after that when we get bored. You think I don't ever come out on the double-minded, unstable side of this equation? Well, I hate to break it to you, but sometimes I do. So what should I expect to receive in those times? Nada. Nothing. Zero. Well, maybe you better think about it again. Person who believes, person who doubts. Person who receives what he asks for, person who doesn't. There's a grounded person, there's a person who's tossed around by the wind. There's a single-minded person, double-minded person. There's a stable person, unstable person. Which one are you? See, belief is a foundational issue when it comes to who you are. Not who you want everybody else to see, but who you know, the people closest to you see, and who God sees, and who you really are. Belief, I said. Belief in what? Again, belief in God's promises and belief in who God is. Are you right now, today, believing in God's promises and in who God is? Or are you just really kind of honestly not believing in much at all? The Greek word translated here as double-minded is hilarious to me. Throughout his book, James will be telling us not to be this double-minded person, this person who kind of walks the fence and never really grounds himself in the faith. Do you want to know... What the Greek word is for this double-minded person, this dipsychos. <laughs> Dip psychos. You can't make this stuff up. James is saying, don't be a dip or a psycho. And by all means, do not be a psychotic dip. Don't be double-minded. Nobody wants to be around a dipsychos person, right? <laughs> Can I make a confession? Lately, at certain moments, I've been a bit dipsychos. And I'm sorry about that, folks. Uh, you might as well know now, I'm not always at 
And even at 100%, I'm a deeply flawed human being. That's why I need the preaching of the Word of God as much as anyone. I'll wager that I learn more from my sermons than anyone else does. Let's move on to what we're going to do with all this information. Because the real question is this. How do I do a better job of believing? I mean, it's great to simply understand how important single-minded belief is. It's, it's a start to realize that half-hearted belief is not worth anything. And to comprehend that what I believe in determines the kind of person I'm going to be. Whether that be stable or unstable and all that. But what am I actually supposed to do about it if I am not where I want to be? in the area of belief. How do I believe better? Belief isn't exactly a switch that I can just decide to turn on, so that, so what can I do that will make a real difference in my life when it comes to believing wholeheartedly? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about, how to believe better. And I have three biblical tips to help. First of all, number one, build the relationship. Build the relationship. Remember Abraham's faith? James actually tells us a little bit later in chapter 2 that Abraham was, quote, a friend of God. Wow. What does that mean? I'd say it means Abraham had a personal relationship with God. That means he was in a constant, he was in constant communication with God, aware of his presence regularly in prayer, and that he listened to what God had to say about the real stuff of his life. The founding father of belief was also a friend of God. These two things go hand in hand. The best way to pump up your belief factor is to spend time with God. Use the Bible. Remind yourself of who God is. Spend time outside in His creation. Be reminded of His beauty and His power. Seek the Lord in your place of worship. Seek Him. Go to Him in prayer. Prayer walk your community. Talk out loud to God. People will think you're talking on the phone. It'll be all right. Have conversations with Him. There are many ways to invest in your relationship with God, and building that relationship will absolutely help you believe. I also want to take this time to say that God is a compassionate friend. He's even willing to work with you to increase your belief. If you ask for help with whatever small amount of belief you have, God will help you believe more. Not going to share the whole story, but once when Jesus decided to heal a man's son, though the man's faith was small, it was enough. Let's see what happened. From Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 17. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I don't know about you, but that scene has always kind of touched my soul. And by the way, Jesus goes on to heal the boy on the basis of this man's mustard seed of faith. Why? Wasn't this man double-minded? How, how does this go together? What, he, was, he was at first. But what happened when he asked for help with his double-mindedness? I'll tell you what happened. God helped. The man asked for help with his faith, and he got it. Even enough so that he received what he was asking for. When we're willing to invest in our relationship with God, he meets us more than halfway. Our Heavenly Father is compassionate. He wants us to experience the joy of his work in our lives. 
If your belief level is a little anemic, invest in your relationship with God and regularly ask Him for help. He'll take care of the rest. Secondly, in order to believe better, don't be afraid to actively <clears throat> resist doubt. That's number two, resist doubt. I'm a firm believer that I can control what I think about. Sometimes I just need to get control of my mind. I need mental discipline. I need to turn down the white noise. Anybody else have? I mean, I just decided to be off Facebook for a while. It may not be that long, but, oh, for crying out loud, you know. When you have friends saying, is that all you do? You start realizing, maybe I'm a little bit overwhelmed right now by this. Turn the white noise down. Make some decisions. Get control of your mental state. You know, there's a time to just stop analyzing and criticizing and just surrender to belief. Yes, there's even a time for what someone might call closed-mindedness. Remember what somebody said, if your mind is too open, be careful because it might just fall out. There's a time to discipline yourself and simply decide to be a single-minded person, a stable person, a grounded person. There's a time to stop listening to every argument that is brought up against your faith. That's right. If you want to, be, if you want to believe better, that's what we're talking about, to believe better, you may need to control the information you choose to take in. In this age of information overload and a preponderance of powerfully persuasive propaganda, Say that three times fast, but it's, it's what it is. Preponderance of powerfully persuasive propaganda. It's, it's everywhere, now more than ever. There's a need for a filter. I know I need a filter. I can't handle it all. There's a need for a filter, at least most of the time. If you already know Jesus, then you may want to protect your mind a little bit. Because James leaves little room for skeptical, skeptical Christianity. I'm a person who wants to be able to defend my beliefs. And I think true science, accurate history, and traditional rationality are my best friends. So I'm not saying that we Christians should go back to closed-minded dogmatism. But let me ask you a question. Who is the primary personality in the universe wanting you to doubt the things of God? <laughs> that would be Satan. Throughout Scripture, this is just about all that we see him doing. With Adam and Eve... No, I didn't really say that. Not really. Several other Old Testament characters with Judas Iscariot, and even attempts with Jesus. Satan always wants to get people to doubt what God has said and who he is. It's his primary activity in this world. And guess what James said we should do when it comes to Satan? Jumping ahead to chapter 4, James said we should resist the devil. He also says when we resist him, he will flee from us. So we're specifically admonished to resist the father of doubt. And folks, that may mean refusing to listen. If you want to believe better, if you do, then you'll need to be intentional about resisting doubt and the father of doubt. There's a place for knowing the arguments of the enemy in order to better defend against him, but be careful. Your enemy is crafty. Be very careful. And right now, I'm not trying to tell you what you ought to do. As much as I'm just trying to give you some practical advice on how to believe better. One important step is to resist doubt. 
Don't just follow the devil down his preferred mental pathway for you. Don't follow him. Resist. All right, so if you want to, be a, uh, to believe better, first, build your relationship with God. Second, have the courage to intentionally resist doubt. The third help for your belief level <clears throat> is this. Remember the past. Remember the past. It's a principle seen throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. God was always telling his chosen people to remember what he had done for them, what he had done before. Build an altar. Institute a new yearly offering or a feast. Pile up some rocks in a certain place to remember what he did. Celebrate a feast offering. Uh, 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 do this every year on such and such a date. Memorize these stories and tell your children. Write it on your doorpost. Compose some songs to remind you of what all that God has done and sing those songs. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. This concept of calling to remembrance what God has done in the past is everywhere in the Bible. Why? Because God knows that believing today is empowered by remembering what he did yesterday. Believing today is empowered by remembering what he did yesterday. The more we remember what God has done in the past, the more we believe in what he will do in the present and future. Some people are really good at this. My mom is one of those people. She has her whole life story written down. It's amazing. It's like a million pages. I'm not saying she's old. Just thorough. Very thorough. On the other hand, I am really bad at this. Really bad. If you know me and know my personality, you'd understand. By nature, I forget the past. I need about three days to get over the worst stuff. It's bad for three days. You don't want to be around when it's three days because I get it done. I get over it. Boom. That's, about, that's a rough three days or so, sometimes four. My wife is back there. I, I need to be honest. I don't know. But it's short. I don't hang out in the past. So, But the bad side of that is that I don't remember the good either. I, I, I really don't. It's like I just, I'm a present, future kind of guy. Uh, but this biblical principle is something that I need to learn and apply. If I think hard, I can remember a few amazing, miraculous uh, times when God came through. And every time I do remember those things, I'm like, how in the world do I not remember that all the time? And how am I not telling everybody about it? You know? Because there really have been some amazing things that God has done in my life. And beyond the big, huge, amazing things, I know there have been so many other times when God has just orchestrated something small. You know, when God did his thing, probably just about every day. God comes through, and I don't even stop long enough to notice. He works things out for good. He answers prayers, thousands of them. And so much of it's forgotten by me. That's a major mistake on my part because belief in the now is empowered by remembering the past. I really should write more things down. If your belief needs a shot in the arm, start recording and remembering the little things and the big things that God does on a regular basis. So-called coincidences, answered prayers, providence, direction, a situation that could have been so much worse. Start keeping a record and remember. Do that and watch your belief level go through the roof. One thing I did start doing not long ago that's been helping me, started putting, you know, I, my prayer list is in my phone and notes. It's very, 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 very long. But now over time, a lot of that length has green check marks by it. A lot of, I mean, it's just like, you can just scroll down, green, green check marks, just hundreds of them. 
because that means God answered that prayer. We need to do stuff like that. All right, so let's review. James gives us at least three principles about belief. One, receiving requires believing. Two, there's no halfway belief. Three, what we believe affects who we are. And then I've tried to give you three biblical ways to believe better. One, build a relationship. Two, resist doubt. Three, remember the past. I kind of summed up the thesis of the book of James a little bit tongue-in-cheek, maybe a lot tongue-in-cheek. It's put up or shut up, right, the title of the series. And see, that all starts with true belief, true faith, an authentic Christian walk rather than a hypocritical one begins with wholeheartedly believing in God's promises and believing in Him. Maybe the best way we could all respond to this message is to pray the prayer of the honest father I mentioned earlier. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. If that's your prayer today, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has so much to teach us that you use it. You make it living and active, and it just goes to the heart of our issues. Lord, we've talked uh, mostly to believers today, uh, people who have that initial faith in Christ, but are working that out in terms of our belief in your promises and in who you are in our daily lives and for real situations. Most of uh, what I've talked about has been for those who have put their faith in Jesus to start with, but Lord, there are others in this room who have not done that. And that's got to be step one. So, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that knows somewhere deep down that they've never really had a kind of belief, the kind of belief that's not like believing a team is going to win or believing and hoping something exists out there, the kind of belief that would put on a parachute and jump out of the plane, not just look at the parachute and say, I believe there's a parachute right there but the kind of belief that really is trusting in Jesus for eternity, trusting that what you did on the cross was enough, believing that you died for our sins and receiving the gift of eternal life. Something that happens in our hearts, Lord, somebody right now could make that decision and respond to your gospel. And I hope someone will just say yes, just say yes, I need to be saved. I, I, I've, I've always kind of, a lot of people, I always believed in Jesus. What that usually means is not the kind of belief that we're learning about today. Maybe somebody today, Lord, needs to say, uh, I haven't really believed. Today, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Today, I'm, I'm receiving salvation. I, I, I'm coming to the cross and, and asking, Lord, all of us need to have that moment. And for anyone who hadn't before today, I hope someone has had that moment today, and I hope that they will share that with me, with our leadership, so we can help them. Someone has had that moment. God, thank you for working in our lives and in our church. We just surrender to your will. Help this pastor stop hanging on so tight. Help me just trust you. You've done more than enough to win over my faith. You've done so much. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www. 
gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with GoChurch on Facebook and Instagram.